Well, it's good to be with you here this, well, not together here in this room, unfortunately, but uh, it is a blessing that we can nevertheless be under God's word together in this way and still worship together uh, virtually. So, yeah, let's, let's um, count ourselves blessed that even with this snowstorm, uh, we can do this. Uh, in our uh, walking through the book of Galatians, This morning we come to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. So if you would, I invite invite you to turn there uh, with me in your own copy of God's Word, or uh, it'll be on the screen there in front of you. Uh, A few weeks back, uh, Nate had joked about giving me one of the more difficult texts in Galatians, and then he said, no, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, uh, this text is a wonderful text, uh, but it is not uh, an easy text, I don't think. So let's first go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing that we might understand and then walk in faithfulness to his word. Let's pray and then I will read the text. Heavenly Father, what a grace it is that we get to call you Father, that you have made us your children, that you have called us to yourself through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we praise you that you have opened our ears to hear your word, that by your Spirit you have given us new life and given us illumination and understanding of the things of the gospel. And we pray now that as we look at this text here in Galatians, and that as you speak to us through your word, we would see something of the richness of the gospel. Father, I pray that in this hour, as you give us ears to hear, that you would give me a mouth to speak. Lord, we love your word. Help us to cherish it with all our hearts now and to heed it and then to live by it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's give him the glory. Amen. Now, as we begin to consider this passage here in Galatians, we recall that up until chapter 5, Paul has been dealing with the question of justification. How is sinful man to be counted right before a holy God? And his answer is that, as he writes in chapter 2, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Part of the good news of the gospel is that guilty sinners can be made right with God, not through perfect adherence to the Mosaic law, but because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf in his death and resurrection. Now, if that much is true, if the gospel If in the gospel, Jesus Christ has taken away my sin and I am now accounted righteous before God, still, what then does the gospel do in terms of my actual life and actual righteousness? And it's sad to acknowledge, but I think oftentimes we Christians, we can be content simply to be forgiven. You know, as long as I'm good with God, as long as uh, my deck is cleared, I'm happy. As long as I've got my stamp on the passport, I can get to heaven, that's enough for me. But we see something much different here in Galatians 5. Paul's concern for the church was not only that they might be justified through the gospel, but that also they might be sanctified and made holy by the Spirit. And so in his argument against the law, Paul is concerned to show that freedom from the law does not mean that Christians can now live however they please. In verse 13, which we read last week, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And one might imagine Paul's opponents, those who were advocating for circumcision and for adherence to the Mosaic law, you can hear them saying, look, see, if we don't have the law, what's going to keep the flesh from acting out? What's going to keep people from living righteously? And then in verse 16, we get here to Paul's all-important answer. But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the main point of the text in front of us, and that's the main idea that we're going to unpack this morning. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you remember nothing else from the sermon, but you remember that line, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, then it will be a success for us. 
That is the message this morning, and we're going to unpack that statement in three questions. Firstly, we're going to ask, uh, what need is there for walking by the Spirit? Secondly, what is the meaning of walking by the Spirit? And thirdly, what is the promised outcome of walking by the Spirit? So the need for it, the meaning, and the promised outcome. Firstly, then, the need. In the first two uh, verses before us, Paul is very clear about the fact that there is present within the believer a great battle, a great tension, a great war between two powers. On the one hand, there's the flesh and its passions, and on the other hand, the spirit. And um, they're always vying for control in the believer's life. The opening command assumes as much. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then Paul goes on to explain why in verse 17. For the desires of the Spirit are, or for the desires of the flesh, excuse me, are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So clearly, there is a tension, there is a great problem, and we have a very real enemy. And here we see Paul call that enemy by the name of the flesh. And so we're going to spend just a brief moment asking, what is the flesh? And what are the desires of the flesh? And why are these such a problem to believers? Well, by the term uh, flesh, or the Greek word sarx, Paul sometimes means simply man's flesh and blood, his bodily existence. Such as in Romans 1-3 when he speaks of Jesus who was descended from David according to the flesh, he says, the sarks. Jesus is the flesh and blood of David, we might say. But here in Galatians and in many other places, Paul uses this term to speak of man's status of rebellion. And man's being sold under the power of sin. We see this usage in Ephesians chapter 2. In the space of three verses, Paul equates living in the passions of our flesh, Sark's again there, with being dead in trespasses and sins. And also with being sons of disobedience and by nature children of wrath. So to be in the flesh is to be under the power of sin. And in fact, Paul says in Romans 6 to be slaves to sin. The desires, the epithumii, or epithumi, singular here in our text, it's translated in the ESV as plural, but uh, the epithumia, it speaks to that innate, that instinctual longing of the flesh. And this word could be translated craving because it speaks to this basic felt desire. Sort of like when a toddler uh, sees a toy in the hands of another child. And as soon as he sees that toy, he wants it. And as soon as he wants it, what does he do? He goes and he rips that toy out of the, other, uh, out of the, of the hands of the other child. And uh, without much remorse for doing so. Of course, when we become adults, the flesh uh, is more subtle, it's more sly, but it works in the same way. 
me likey, me takey. Now, apart from the Spirit, man is in the bondage to flesh. That is the teaching of the New Testament. But we see here something else. What does the believer, what relationship does the believer sustain to the flesh? And in our text, we see that that relationship is twofold. On the one hand, we read toward the end of our passage in verse 24, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the flesh has been decisively put to death. It has been crucified. But then on the other hand, clearly the flesh is still present. And in some way, it's still active. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about what we're talking about now. Paul wouldn't have the need to talk about the desires of the flesh. Now, how do we make sense of this tension? That the flesh is crucified and yet somehow still active. And well, we see in the New Testament that it's quite mysterious. It's quite hard to wrap our heads around. But Paul's teaching and the teaching of the New Testament is that When we are united to Christ, we are somehow mysteriously and in a real way united to Christ in his death and resurrection, such that the death that Christ died to sin, we too died in that very death. And in Christ's resurrection, we too have been risen to new life. And here's how Paul expresses this mystery in Romans 6. He asks, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Then he proceeds. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Then a couple verses later in verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And again, a few verses after that, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Excuse me. Now, admittedly, this is a difficult thing to grasp. But one way to sum this up is to uh, follow that theological giant of the 17th century, John Owen. And he says it this way, that the dominion of sin has come to an end but its presence still remains. The power of sin is broken, but it is still present in our lives. And Sinclair Ferguson, uh, a pastor and uh, a scholar today, uses the illustration of a castle. And a castle that has been uh, destroyed, but is now being lavishly rebuilt. And that is believers. And even as, as we are being lavishly rebuilt, we still bear the marks of that past destruction. We are a new creation, 
But the Spirit is still continuing to recreate us after the image of Christ. We are still in these old bodies of the flesh, and it still exerts its influence upon us. So, what does all that mean for us then? Well, first of all, I think we need to recognize the fact that the Christian life is a life of struggle. It is a mighty wrestling. It is always a war which is being waged. And because of this, um, we should expect that it will not be easy. Now, some of us, uh, in response to this reality, we become very discouraged. Our imperfections, our failings, our oftentimes insincere and very partial obedience, they can cause us uh, great sorrow. They can be very troubling to us. We fight hard and we still stumble. And sometimes we can even come to the point of wondering, am I truly saved? Why is it that I continue to struggle so mightily with my sin? And the encouragement to those of us in this position is to remember that the battle against the flesh is a daily battle. As John says in 1 John 1.8, he says, If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. And James says we, or that we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And James says we all stumble in many ways. So the Christian life is one of continual repentance. It is one of continual fighting, of continual struggle. Since power is defeated, but in some way its presence remains. Others of us, we do not take the presence of sin seriously enough. We have grown apathetic about holiness. Well, I'm stuck in this body of sin. This is always the way it's going to be. I'm always going to struggle with this thing. And so we grow comfortable with our sin. And we need to ask ourselves, have I resigned myself in this way? Is this me? When is the last time I even identified a particular sin in my life and sought to root it out? And is there any particular sin which I know about and have grown comfortable with? Paul writes in Romans 8, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Simply because the flesh is present doesn't mean we can give up or stop fighting. We have always to be fighting. So the flesh is a very real threat and the Christian life is a continual battle. And thus we have this very real need. This need for walking by the Spirit. So that's our first consideration, the need. And now we turn to our second consideration, which is, what does it mean then to walk by the Spirit? If we need to do it, what does it actually mean to walk by the Spirit? And here again, we see that Paul does not actually outline for us what it means to walk by the Spirit. So we scratch our heads a little bit. What are we to make of this command? And what keeps us from simply filling in the blank with whatever sounds good to us or with whatever matches up with our experience? When I was a student at Moody, uh, some students came back to my floor. They were, uh, a number of them were guys from my floor. 
And they had just gone out on what is called a treasure hunt. Okay, and now a treasure hunt is not what you're thinking. It's not one of those youth group scavenger hunt games at the mall where you look for items, you check off the list, and you try and be the first group back. A treasure hunt is, uh, well, it begins with prayer. It begins with a group of people praying, or I guess you suppose you could do it yourself, but you pray and you listen to the Spirit and you ask the Spirit to give you a word. Now say that uh, word might be blue and, and you get another word and it might be park bench and you get another word and you write these words down and then you go out through the city or wherever you are and you see how God might lead you and you use these words as clues such that if you're walking through a park and you see a man on a park bench and he happens to be wearing blue, well then, aha, the Spirit must have led me here to speak to this man and to declare God's love to this man. And I can tell him, you know, God told me that I would be coming to you today. Is that what it means to walk by the Spirit? And I want to suggest that it is not. Uh, It's not some special activities which we can engage in in the Christian life. And it's not phone booth, Superman, cape and tights, Christianity. And it's not even some special level of intimacy or communion with God. At the most basic level, walking by the Spirit is simply what it means to live the Christian life. There really is no Christian life with it, which is sub-spirit. And we could uh, put it this way, if we wanted to try and flesh it out just a little bit. To walk by the Spirit means to walk in conformity to Christ and by the power of his Spirit. Now let's unpack that for just a minute. Uh, Firstly, conformity uh, to Christ. you know what, actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, excuse me. I, I want to defend why it is uh, that I say walking by the Spirit is the basic essence of the Christian life. Firstly, the metaphor of walking stands for how one lives their life, how one conducts themselves. If you're going to walk the walk, you've got to talk the talk, we say, right? And we see this metaphor of walking used Throughout Scripture. In Deuteronomy 5, after the restatement of the Ten Commandments, Moses says to the people of Israel, He says, You shall be careful, therefore, not to do, or excuse me, to do, as Yahweh your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. So, walking then is a common metaphor for how one lives their life day to day. But secondly, we see in our passage that to walk by the Spirit has as its parallel being led by the Spirit. Paul says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now that statement is a little bit confusing at first, but the point Paul's making is that there's no dual citizenship here. You can't be led by the Spirit, and be under the law. You can be one or the other, but you can't be both. And so, if you are led by the Spirit, you are de facto not under the law. 
And if you are not under the law, then you are certainly someone who is led by the Spirit. And to help jog your memory, uh, we have this from Galatians 4. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So to be redeemed from the law is to have the Spirit and to be the Spirit-led individual. And Paul sums all this up quite simply in Romans 8 when he says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you are a son of God, you are led by the Spirit of God. So at the most basic level then, to walk by the Spirit is to live the Christian life. And now I want to unpack just a little more what that might actually look like. Firstly, conformity to Christ. Walking by the Spirit, we see here in Galatians 5, it always has a particular end in view. And that end is Christ-likeness. This is why we see Paul list here the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. We may not be under the Mosaic law, but that doesn't mean that there's no ethical standard by which we ought to live. God still calls his people. He says, be holy as I am holy. And we ought to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. So Christianity is not uh, just doing what we like and always having a get out of jail free card. Rather, part of walking, what, walking by the spirit is to consider what sin looks like and to war against it. And to consider what the righteousness of Christ looks like. And to pursue it with all our strength. So we ask ourselves as we look here at these these lists in Galatians. And we won't look at all these terms today. But I encourage you in your own time to, to look at these lists. And to ask yourself. Are there any of these works in the flesh. Works of the flesh in my own life. Sexual immorality. Anger. Envy? Are any of these things present in me? And if so, then we ought to confess those things and repent of those things and by the Spirit's power to put those deeds to death. We ask also about the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience. We ask ourselves are these things present in my life? Am I patient? What would my spouse or my children say in answer to that question? Or my peers at school or my coworkers? Am I patient? Do I bear with others in their failings and their weaknesses? So we, we examine ourselves. And lastly, uh, one more point we see in this text. We look at our relationships with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And actually, if you look at the fruit, if you look at the works of the flesh... They're very much interpersonal categories. And so then in verse 26, Paul issues a parallel command to keeping in step with the Spirit. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
That would be the opposite of keeping in step with the Spirit. There's a gross inconsistency in our lives when we claim to love God, but we do not love one another. And so we examine ourselves. Uh, And we ask questions because walking by the Spirit means seeking to walk in conformity to Christ. And when we do, Paul says, we live in such a way that no law could condemn. After the list of the Spirit's fruit, Paul writes, against such things, there is no law. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of righteousness. So conformity to Christ. And secondly, walking by the Spirit means to be an active, uh, to be actively dependent upon the Spirit's power. To not just seek to be like Christ, but to be actively dependent upon the Spirit of Christ. Um, We see that in the very language of this text, that of walking, that there is some activity of the Christian life. In verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, and we do, we have been born again by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also then keep in step with the Spirit. There's something real here we have to do. The Christian life isn't automatic. It's not just flipping on a light switch. So then, brass tacks. What does it actually uh, look like to do this? And I think as we ask this question, we have to acknowledge one of the frustrating truths uh, of reading scripture sometimes, that in many ways, there is no uh, detailed Ikea-like manual, no step-by-step process with points and subpoints on what it means uh, to do this or that thing, and here on what it means to walk by the Spirit. Rather, in this instance, what we have is the cumulative witness, the sum total of what the New Testament says Christians uh, do when they walk by the Spirit. And so I want to outline um, some of these things that only happen by the power of the Spirit. (laughs) And you'll see that some of these things uh, is really everything in the Christian life. I can't say everything now, but just a few here. We can't receive the gospel unless the Spirit causes us to be born again, John 3. We can't understand the Word of God unless the Spirit illumines our understanding. It's 1 Corinthians 2. We can't even pray apart from the Spirit's help. The model we have in Scripture is that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. So Paul says in Ephesians that Christians should be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. There is no prayer which is not in the spirit, uh, one person I was reading uh, this week said. And the same is true of all our obedience. Everything we do is rendered unto the Father, and it is sanctified through the Son who makes our service acceptable to the Father. And it is empowered by the Spirit of God who makes our obedience true and sincere and from our hearts. So when Paul says, walk by the Spirit, part of what it means is that we ought always to live before the face of God. That day by day, there is an active dependence. 
The whole of the Christian life is walking by the Spirit. And it's something we must be cognizant of. We must be aware of it. We must be consciously seeking the Spirit's help daily to live the Christian life. There's a continual conversation with God in the Christian life. There's a listening to the word of Christ. As Paul says in Colossians, he says that we should let the word of Christ dwell within us richly. And then there is a responding in obedience, asking for God's strength, the strength of his spirit to obey. And this is what it actually means to listen to the voice of the spirit. It is not to listen to a special and secret word to us, but it is to open the word of God. And every time we open the word of God, there the spirit is speaking to us. In Ephesians 6, the word of God, the word of God is called the sword of the spirit because it is the spirit who uses the word of God in our lives. In Hebrews 4, the word of God is called living and active. And not because it is imbued with some special property, but because through it, the living and active God, the Holy Spirit works in our lives. If you want to hear the Spirit speak to you, believer, open the word of God and he will. And I'll add one last thought here on what it means to walk by the Spirit. Walking um, by God's Spirit is not something we always feel. It's not always a felt reality. Samuel uh, Bolton, another 17th century minister, he makes this point that if believers only prayed when we felt God's Spirit moving us to pray, then our communion with God would be much poorer for it. He writes, How often does a believer go to prayer with a dead heart and rise with a lively heart? He begins with a straighted heart, that means like a straight-jacketed heart, and rises with an enlarged heart. He begins dejected and ends comforted. How often, when he could not sense God leading him to duty, has he yet met God in the midst of the duty and enjoyed God in a prayer, in a glorious, sweet way. And then he has this wonderful line a bit further on. He writes, God loves to meet those that are in his way. See, we don't always feel God's spirit compelling us to do something. But as we seek to obey, God's spirit is there still present with us as we do it. And in fact, Bolton says that whenever we pray, it's only because we've been led there by the spirit. And the same is true of the whole Christian life. It is always the spirit empowering us. It is always the spirit leading us. And it is always us with our whole selves actively engaging and seeking to walk faithfully with God. So the entirety of the Christian life is one of walking by the Spirit in conformity to Christ and by the power of his Spirit. So then, and this point, this third point is going to be much shorter now. Uh, The need for walking by the Spirit, the meaning of walking by the Spirit, and the promise of walking by the Spirit. And of course, it is what we've been noting this whole time. Walk by the Spirit 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If the flesh can sometimes seem like and feel like a knight in mighty armor, then the spirit is like an armored tank. There really is no competition. And that's because the spirit's power is the very power of God. It is the power which upholds the very cosmos, even now the power that is allowing each and every one of us to keep breathing. Surely it is not too much a thing for the Spirit to help us overcome sin. That is the promise of walking by the Spirit. And it, in fact, is a promise. Paul gives the command and he says, in the possible, in, in the strongest terms possible, it's hard to see in the English, but this is the strongest form of negation in Greek, almost to be translated perhaps, and you surely will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So part of the gospel then is that as we walk by the spirit, there is real transformation. There is real freedom in our lives. That we don't simply have a written code, but we have a power within us. And by that power, we believers, we love one another. The works of the flesh don't divide us, but the fruit of the Spirit unites us. We actually begin to look more and more like Christ and see his love worked out in our midst. The law of Christ, the law of love, working itself out in us through the Spirit. And of course, the end of all this for believers, the end of the gospel, is that we have an eternal inheritance. Paul says that those who do the works of the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But of course, when we walk by the Spirit, first trusting in Christ by faith and being united to him through faith and being cleansed by his blood, the end result of becoming a Christian is not merely to be forgiven. And it is not even merely simply to live a righteous life and to strive in this life toward holiness. But one day we will be set free. Excuse me. It is a wonderful truth, believer. That one day you will never struggle with sin. That one day... Your relationships will never be marred. That perhaps the tension you feel right now in your marriage or toward uh, your children or in some relationship, the struggle we have, the things that feel like uh, they control us, one day we will be set free. And there will be nothing keeping us from that sweet and intimate communion with God the Father and with his Son. That ultimately is the promise this morning. It's the promise we rejoice in as we come away from this passage. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you that you, in sending the Lord Jesus, have not called him simply to return to his throne in heaven to leave us here alone. But that God, you have come to us in 
just as real a way as Christ came to us in his incarnation. You have come to us with the very spirit, your spirit, the spirit of Christ. God, may we believe in that. Help us to rejoice in that. And help us to walk by the Spirit's power. To have victory over sin and over the flesh. That we may always be drawing nearer to you, Heavenly Father. Show us the joy of your salvation. Even as we continue to worship you this Lord's Day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.